Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Jacob Dalton about his recent book, The Taming of the Demons, Violence and Liberation in Tibetan Buddhism, published by Yale University Press in 2011. This book examines violence, both symbolic and otherwise, in Tibetan Buddhism. Dalton focuses in particular on the age of fragmentation, here 842 to 986, and draws on previously unexamined Dunhuang manuscripts to show that this period was one of great creativity and innovation, and a time when violent myths and rituals were instrumental in adapting Buddhism to local interests thereby allowing Buddhism to firmly establish itself in Tibet. While much 20th century scholarship faithfully followed Tibetan historiography's assertion that the age of fragmentation was a dark time during which the light of Buddhism faded completely, Dalton not only confirms that Buddhism continued throughout this period, but also looks to the Dunhuang materials to show that it was in fact the age of fragmentation narratives of demon taming that laid the groundwork for the emergence of a new pan-Tibetan Buddhist identity, beginning in the 11th century. Central to Dalton's project are a myth and a ritual. The myth is that of the subjugation of the demoness Rudra, in which a compassionate but wrathful Buddhist deity violently defeats the wild Rudra, using a means that Buddhism condemns, violence, and yet is used as a force for good in this case. This narrative encapsulates a theme that runs throughout the book, the Buddhist ambivalence towards violence an ambivalence present in the tradition from its earliest days, but which found its fullest expression in Tantric Buddhism. The ritual, on the other hand, is the so-called liberation ritual, in which a victim, usually an effigy is prescribed, is ritually murdered and then purified. Dalton focuses in particular on a Dunhuang ritual manual, which, incidentally, makes no mention of an effigy, thus leaving some doubt as to whether or not the manual intends an actual human victim. This rite and the story of Rudra constitute, constitute a pair of sorts, and together served as a theoretical, historical, mythic, and practical model whereby the native evil demons of Tibet could be tamed, i.e. ritually murdered and purified, and employed in the service of Buddhism. 
Dalton also demonstrates how the themes of violence and demon taming continued beyond the age of fragmentation. For example, a composite work called the Pillar Testament, late 11th to mid-12th century, contains a legend in which the 7th century king Songtsen Gampo had to subjugate the land of Tibet, envisioned as, and thus identified as none other than, a huge Rakshasi demoness lying on her back, by pinning this demoness down with 13 temples. In this way, the legend carries the model of demon subjugation that was used at the local level during the Age of Fragmentation to a national level during the Second Imperial Period. Later on, as Tibetans ceased to think of their own evil nature and autochthonous demons as the greatest threat to Buddhism, and instead shifted their attention to peoples and powers at the periphery of their realm, the same model of demon subjugation was applied, with Tibet's perceived enemies, particularly the Mongols, taking the role of sacrificial victim. The book's content is wide-ranging yet skillfully woven together through the dual themes of violence and liberation, i.e. demon subjugation. Along the way, we hear about the differences between Chinese and Tibetan receptions of Buddhist scriptural attitudes towards violence, Padmasambhava as a demon tamer, the Indian Kalika Purana, King Yesheo's late 10th century attempts to prohibit the liberation rite, the 5th Dalai Lama's use of demon-quelling rites for military success, and 18th, 19th, and 20th century British and Tibetan views and condemnations of what appear to be sacrificial rituals. These are but a few of the many topics covered in this book's seven chapters. Three appendices provide a translation of the Rudra myth, as well as transcriptions, translations, and transliterations of two t- uh, liberation rite manuals from Dunhuang. This book will be particularly valuable to those researching or interested in violence and religion, Tibetan historiography, the importance of Dunhuang materials in the study of pre-modern Tibet, the relationship between Buddhism and autochthonous deities, the use of myth in the construction of Buddhist identity and history, and 19th and 20th century Western views of Tibet. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books and Buddhist Studies. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today I'm with Jacob Dalton, and we're going to be talking about his new book, The Taming of the Demons, Violence and Liberation in Tibetan Buddhism, uh, published by Yale University Press in 2011. This book was shortlisted for the 2012 American Academy of Religion Book Award in the Historical Study of Religion category. It won the 2013 E. Jean Smith Book Prize on Inner Asia, given by the Association of Asian Studies, China, and Inner Asia Councils. And it also won the 2013 Bernard S. Cohn Book Prize, sponsored by the Association of Asian Studies South Asia Council. Jacob Dalton is Associate Professor and Kentse Foundation Distinguished Professor of Tibetan Buddhism at the University of California, Berkeley, with appointments in the Department of South and Southeast Asian Studies and also in the Department of East Asian Languages and Cultures. Jacob Dalton, welcome to the show, and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for having me. No, no. Pleasure's mine. So I was wondering if you could just begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, where you're from, how you came to the study of Tibet and or Buddhism, um, any important influences in your life, for example, uh, mentors, academic advisors. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I, well, I, I first encountered Buddhism as an undergraduate um, at Amherst College. And uh, at the time, when I was a freshman, Robert Thurman was uh, just in his last year before moving to Columbia, and I took a course on Introduction to Religions, and he taught one little segment 
of the course on Buddhism and it sort of caught my interest. And the very next year, Janet Gyatso started at Amherst. And mm. so I enrolled in courses with her all year. And it was sort of around this time that I was also starting to uh, question like a sort of typical undergraduate does and mm. getting interested in philosophy. So at the same time as I was taking that year of courses with Janet, I was also enrolled in a year-long uh, sequence on uh, Western political philosophy. Mm. Um, and so I was just, I was at first sort of interested in comparative philosophy uh, and uh, getting very excited about Buddhist philosophy. And, and then I um, took some time off from college and uh, ended up doing a study abroad program uh, with Hubert de Clare and the SIT program, which has um, uh, sort of hosted a, a lot of undergrad students who went on to do PhDs in Tibetan studies. Mm. Um, so that was in, <clears throat> that was the spring semester of 1990. Mm -hmm. And it was on that trip that I, I was shocked to discover that this isn't just an abstract philosophy, but there are actually people sitting in caves <laughs> and so on, uh, doing these practices. Mm. And that just blew me away, and I um, realized I wanted to spend the rest of my life going back and forth to Asia and having a, a real reason to be there. Mm -hmm. um, and so I then went on and finished my BA, not at Amherst, but at... Um, a tiny college called Marlborough College in Vermont, mm -hmm. and uh, and um, and then yeah, ended up doing my PhD at Michigan under Donald Lopez, my mm -hmm. MA and PhD mm -hmm. in Buddhist studies, and uh, gradually my interests moved from the philosophical more toward ritual um, and the history of ritual, which is kind of what I guess characterizes a lot of my work um, since mm -hmm. uh, since completing my PhD. Mm. It's still philosophy lurks in the background, but <laughs> it's ritual in particular and the ways that Buddhist philosophy kind of is instantiated in, in ritual and how that changes over time. Mm -hmm. Um and do you want me to continue on with my autobiography beyond my PhD, or shall I stop there for now? Um, yeah, well, we can... Um, do, do you mean in terms of the work you've uh, pursued since uh, getting your PhD? Yeah. Um, no, you can stop there. That's good. Um, okay. Thank you very much. Um, so, the... Um, your previous, a lot of your previous work, not all of it, obviously, has, um, but before this 2011 book, and of course, you've got another one about to come out, um, I guess, in 2015. But prior to uh, The Taming of the Demons, um, a lot of your work uh, focused on uh, cataloging the Stein collection of the Dunhuang manuscripts held at the British Library. Um, so how did you come to write your second book? Uh, and your first book, which um, co-authored book, was on that. But how did you come to write your second book on the theme of violence in Tibetan Buddhism? Yeah, so um, uh, it's so 
I, it's a slightly unorthodox path. I, I, so my PhD was on this one Nyingma Tantra and its whole history from its inception in the ninth century right through to the present day. Hmm. Um, and the, so that's uh, normally people's first book is their PhD reworked, but that's actually the book that's coming out with Columbia in another year or something. I see. Um, but so after I finished my PhD, I got what amounted to kind of a postdoc position for three years working with the International Dunhuang Project at the British Library. Mm. Um, and I was working very closely with Sam Bunskayak, who's a dear friend and colleague. Uh, and um, our job was to catalog the tantric manuscripts in the Stein collection, uh, meaning, uh, and, meaning the the manuscripts they found in the library cave at Dunhuang. Mm-hmm. Um, by, by, by tantric in this case, does that mean all the ones in Tibetan or? or? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, focusing on the Tibetan in particular. So the, the, those, the Stein manuscripts from Dunhuang were originally cataloged by Louis de Levelle Poussin during mm-hmm. world war one. But, but at the time, you know, tantric studies was, basically non-existent. And mm-hmm. so if you look at his catalog, it's, you know, as one might expect, incredibly well informed about sutric Buddhism. But when it came to the tantric manuscripts, he just says sort of mantras and moves on. to the next <laughs> um, So they, so the IDP had applied for a grant to digitize a lot of the Tibetan tantric manuscripts and then hired me as a full-time cataloger uh, to, yeah, to to read through all of them and write wow. descriptive entries. So that was just this incredibly lucky opportunity where for three years um, I just had free run of the British Library and wow. uh, my own interests fit very well with what the IDP wanted of me. So no one ever said a word to me that I should be doing anything different than what I was. Mm. And, and Sam and I... Uh, just had a great three years, gradually kind of coming to terms with the, and reckoning with the tantric manuscripts, which, you know, to start out, neither of us were very well prepared Mm. to stand at all, but, um, but it was great having a partner in crime and we gradually worked our way through the collection. Yeah. Um, and so that produced the catalog and then uh, I, I have a couple of other book projects that kind of grew out of that. So the first one was this book on violence that's the subject of this interview. Mm-hmm. And um, that basically happened because um, actually I had outstanding a translation from my PhD research of the most elaborate version of the taming of Rudra myth. Mm-hmm in which the Buddhas sort of take on a violent form and and kill Rudra, this demon of primordial ignorance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had that and didn't use it for my PhD, but had it lurking in the background. And, and then as I was reading through these Dunhuang manuscripts, um, I came across <clears throat> one uh, manuscript in particular, but then later began to realize there are a couple of manuals in addition describing a similar rite. But this manuscript contained instructions for what's known as the liberation rite or drolwa rite, where one usually takes an effigy and um, 
sort of calls the soul of one's enemy into the, uh, usually a demon, into the effigy and uh, and destroys the effigy, thereby sort of, you know, causing harm to the person. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of the ritual pair to the myth of, uh, you know, Rudra's taming. Mm-hmm. So you have this myth ritual pairing that where with the myth justifying the violent the use of violent means mm-hmm. um, by the Buddhas, and then a ritual for how to reenact that myth um, by you know directing violent activity toward some demonic force. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, and so I sort of was surprised, but by how explicit some of these manuals were. I hadn't encountered this kind of material before and um, thought increasingly of this myth ritual pair as a nice, as nice, they complemented each other nicely. Mm-hmm. And, and um, then gradually that grew into a book of where I was just kind of trying to come to terms with what these two texts meant and how they um, affected Tibetan uh, Buddhist uh, culture and history through mm-hmm. the ages. So that the book sort of starts with those two texts as a jumping off point and then moves through Tibetan mm-hmm. history, tracing some of the, the themes that are in them through different moments in Tibetan history. Mm-hmm. Um which is basically what the book is about. I see. So, so, um, and so, so getting into the book itself, um, the, the first thing I wanted to mention is just about sources. It seems like one of, uh, there are, there are many, uh, this book, um, makes many, uh, contributions to the field of, uh, Tibetan Buddhist studies, but one of the most original, it seems, uh, or one, uh, one of the original ones, it seems, would be the use of these Dunhuang manuscripts. And you mentioned in the beginning of the book that these really haven't been used very much. Um, and I was just wondering if you could say one word why, uh, about why that is that they haven't been used. Um, well, I, I mean, there's a lot of work that's been done on them in the form of articles. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but it's, I mean, it's a large collection to have the time to read through is, would be difficult. And, yeah. um, in general at both the British library and the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, where mm-hmm. the half of the collection sits, um, you know, it's, it's diff- you have to call up one manuscript at a time and it's very yeah. laborious. So I see. It, it was partly just how fortunate this opportunity was that I suddenly had, free run of the library and could run could could go down and bring up as many manuscripts as I want whenever I wanted. Yeah. Um, and having the, the free time of three years to just read through them gave me a kind of a larger vision of the collection as a whole. I see. Um, so in that way, it enabled me to kind of, in, in fact, each of the three book projects that have grown out of that cataloging work, um, that I'm working on, I see them as together kind of providing a, a larger vision of the significance of the collection as a whole in a way that just for pragmatic reasons hadn't been possible before. Right. So, so, 
Okay, so um, so moving on into the uh, introduction, we already uh, in the introduction you write that the history of violence in Tibet is rooted in a fundamental pairing of myth and ritual: the myth of the demon Rudra's subjugation and the euphemistically named liberation rite. We've already discussed these a bit, um, but these are central to the books. So I just wanted to, uh, I mean, these very central to the book, so I wanted to point these out. And the myth of the demon Rudra is basically. Uh, this story of the demon Rudra, who in a former life was a disciple of a Buddhist monk um, who misunderstood his um, this monk's teachings, was angered and uh, uh, banished this monk, his teacher, and then descended into a life of hedonism, um, eventually descending into Avicii hell. But then through a moment's reflection on his past evil deeds, uh, he begins to ascend towards better realms until he's eventually born as a human. Uh, but as a human, however, he is particularly evil and eventually becomes the leader of all the beasts and demons um, on the island of Lanka, which is where he's born. And anyway, it's a quite an elaborate story. But eventually the Rudra is defeated by the uh, the, the Heruka Buddha, who swallows him and purifies the demon inside his belly. So correct me if I'm wrong, but here the you've got sort of two parties who are both uh, in, uh, engaged in violence, Rudra and then the... the uh, uh, the Heruka, um, but one is doing it sort of in a way that is sanctioned by tantric Buddhism, and one is doing it not in that way. Is that yeah. a, okay? And then the liberation rite, as you described, is uh, this um, sort of usually involving an effigy in which you sort of sacrifice the victim, but for the benefit of the victim. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So um, so we'll, we'll, we'll discuss this a bit more um, as we go, but um, moving on to chapter one, you you discuss the history of compassionate violence in Buddhism, and uh, although the apparently oxymoronic concept of compassionate killing may have found its most explicit uh, expression in the Tantras, um, you note that from early on, Buddhism acknowledged the moral complexity of violence, and that uh, this began to be further developed in Mahayana Buddhism, in which there was a greater emphasis on intention than there was on adherence to monastic codes or, say, uh, behavioral norms. So I was wondering if you could just uh, discuss this um, this sort of doctrinal backdrop of Buddhist um, attitudes towards and ambivalence about violence. Yeah, that, I, I mean, so, as you say, the ambivalence around violence is sort of one of the main themes that I trace through the whole book. And... Um, you said that uh, that in a way the Buddha and Rudra in the myth are both involved in violence, but uh, somehow the Buddha's violence is compassionate and good, whereas Rudra's is demonic and evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet their means are so sort of alarming and similar, and alarmingly similar. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that that it raises certain questions about how you tell the difference. So that's um, that's a difficult question, and kind of the central question uh, that, or a central question at least, around violence that we all have to reckon with as human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of what I wanted to um, question was a sort of overly simplistic view of Buddhism as just simply uh, nonviolent. Right. When in fact they, ha- they are 
you know, they're real intellectuals and they are struggling with this intractable problem of violence mm. and recognizing the extent to which it's terrible and to be avoided and yet unavoidable and part of life and needs to be reckoned with. So there's this ambivalence that we all feel towards violence, um, which can even take a form of sort of a fascination with violence as we see in the movies today and, mm-hmm. um, and in the violent imagery and the myth itself. So, mm-hmm. which is quite uh, gory. Yes. And clearly they're in some way, for some reason, reveling in it. Um, So the first chapter really traces this struggle with violence and the attempt to come to terms with this problem back from the tantras, like you say, into the the sutras and in particular Mahayana Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Uh, and I, I trace it back to the bodhisattvic idea of compassionate violence mm-hmm. that you find in some of the, well, most famously in, in the story of the Buddha in a previous life as the ship's captain. Mm. He uh, is on the ship with, I think, 500 uh, merchants mm. and um, discovers at some point that there's one guy on board who plans to murder everyone and steal all the all the treasure on board and so the buddha reasons that well if he tells everyone that this is this guy's plan they'll kill him um and if he doesn't tell them the guy will go ahead and kill them and so the buddha is sort of caught in this quandary and where there's going to be violence one way or the other, no matter what he does. Mm. So in a kind of self-sacrificial uh, way, he decides the only possible solution in such situations is for him to kill the thief, thereby taking on the bad karma of, of murdering the thief himself, rather than having the, the merchants take on that bad karma by killing the thief. Mm. So he does so, and and then because of his pure selfless motivation at the last moment, he, of course, is um, actually sort of karmically saved, and the thief mm-hmm. goes, I think, to a good rebirth, and everything works out nicely in the end. Yes. But, but it's only through, and this is sort of the paradox of that's involved in some of this violence, is it's only through the Buddhas or the future Buddha, the Bodhisattvas, um, willingness to endure the negative karma that he escapes the negative karma. Uh (laughs) In other words, he sort of accepts violence in order to transcend violence. So there's a sort of paradox there Mm -hmm. that I found interesting in terms of the ambivalence that I've already mentioned here, how violence is part of life and yet you want to somehow transcend or escape it Mm. and yet you can't escape it as long as you're trying to escape because then you're doing violence to the idea of violence and sort of suppressing it which can involve you in new forms of violence um and which of course ties into the larger buddhist paradox of how do you defeat desire how did when you want to defeat desire you know to Mm -hmm. desire defeating desire is a paradox and how do you accomplish such a thing And so you find a similar kind of paradox with violence where you want to suppress violence because it's awful, but that suppression itself can be 
in a form of violence. Mm-hmm. So that that kind of paradox and ambivalence, the, all of these kind of moves are what I lay out in doctrinally in that first chapter, and that sort of sets the doctrinal stage for everything, that, the more historical chapters that follow uh, after that. Okay, so that so that's um, so with that doctrinal backdrop, um, you move into um, the chapter, the second chapter, in which you're focusing on Tibet's age of fragmentation, or more specifically on, on the late ninth and tenth centuries. Um, and here, you argue that rather than being a time of decay, this period saw not only the continuation of Buddhism, but in fact the development of Buddhism. Uh, in new and creative ways. Um, and that central to this development was tantric myth and ritual. Um, and furthermore, you also uh, note that this development occurred sort of throughout um, Tibetan society, not just among a very small group of elites, um, as had been, as had previously been the case. Um, now, the, the, you, you, you state that the prior to 900, the court was interested in the sort of non-localized, universal, utopian-like Buddhism, uh, while the people, the historical actors during the Age of Fragmentation were interested instead in application of Buddhism to a very local context. So there was this sort of uh, previous interest in kind of a utopian, non-localized Buddhism, and then it turns into this very localized form. So... Um, I, so, so, so I wanted to ask first: To what extent is this view of the age of fragmentation new? Is this something that um, is sort of increasingly accepted by scholars of Tibetan history, culture, Buddhism? Um, and also, I wanted to ask: uh, In what way was ta- tantric myth and ritual central to development um, of these sort of localized forms of Buddhist, Buddhism during this age? Right. Um, I, I think scholars previous to this book had certainly been questioning the traditional Tibetan historical accounts of this so-called Dark Age, mm-hmm. Age of Fragmentation, or whatever you want to call it. Um, the The traditional accounts blame the whole thing on this demonic king, Longdharma, who supposedly, around the mid middle of the ninth century closed down all the Buddhist monasteries and persecuted Buddhists and um, and sort of plunged and, and plunged Tibet into darkness, sort of ending the, the glory days of the Tibetan Empire when Tibetans were in control of much of Central Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so s- scholars had already you know, many had already questioned this and pointed out that the the reasons for the collapse of the empire were probably more complicated than a demonic king's, you know, Mm -hmm. lone influence. Um, And the economic factors may have been at work and that the collapse wasn't, didn't happen, wasn't as precipitous, but in fact, it was a gradual process that happened over many decades. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but maybe, I mean, there's probably a few exceptions, but I'd, maybe I could say that the what's new about what this book does is that it, it then takes the next step by saying, okay, 
but then what what exactly happened in this age of fragmentation or dark age um uh once it was once the empire had collapsed what what made this you know again the traditional histories say nothing happened the lamp mm. of the dharma the typical metaphor is the lamp of the dharma the flame of the dharma went out or was extinguished yeah. and only at the end of the 10th century were the embers sort of rekindled yeah. and buddhism began to flourish again but um so in in the same spirit of sort of questioning the traditional accounts i uh, you know, maybe previous scholars had suggested, well, maybe it wasn't completely dark, mm-hmm. um, but I really wanted to explore more fully what happened during those years. Mm-hmm. And one of the results of <clears throat> um, my work with the Dunhuang manuscripts uh, was to gradually recognize how many of them dated from this dark age mm. that... Um, that in fact, you know, for example, Sir Oral Stein, who's the archaeologist who originally brought these manuscripts to London, mm-hmm. very quickly came up with this theory that, well, they probably date from the imperial period that ended with Long Dharma, mm-hmm. um, because that's when Tibet, the Tibetan Empire was at the height of its power and it controlled Dunhuang, and that's probably therefore when Tibetan was being written. So this is early 9th century then? Yeah, so okay. he thought, well, so most of these must date from the early 9th century. Mm. Uh, but gradually, as I was working on these manuscripts, it became apparent that especially the Tantric manuscripts really almost all date to the 10th century. Mm. Uh, so and, and so I started realizing, you know, the norm, normally we think, well, we have very little literature from this, this age of fragmentation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so who knows what happened? because the monasteries had collapsed, the centralized political authority had collapsed, and we have little in the way of evidence. Mm. In fact, we, that's not entirely true. But if once you redate the Dunhuang collection, or large portions of it, you suddenly realize we actually have quite a number of windows into that period. Mm. Um, and, so, and it struck me as particularly significant that so many of the tantric manuscripts dated from that period, Mm-hmm. You know, there are some that date from the ninth century, but those uh, they don't seem to contain so much tantric material. I see, um, which fits with what you'd expect because there were there were imperial decrees um, against the tantras, or I at see. least against the public dissemination of the tantras. They wanted to control it within the court, right? Um, so and and so. You know, what we find at Dunhuang implies that after the collapse of the empire and the centralized authority, then uh, the the Tibetans were sort of freed to plunge into the world of Tantric Buddhism. And and by the 10th century, you find Tantric texts being written uh, at Dunhuang. Right. So so one of the... um It seems like one of the central... um uh, one of the central arguments in this chapter is the way in which uh, the sort of polig- political fragmentation um, was mirrored by a fragmentation of Buddhism, where um, the t- uh, Tibetan myth and ritual, especially the um, the, ru- the subjugation of Rudra myth, were sort of applied to um, to local deities, um, and in 
uh, sort of catering to the interests of local patrons. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering if you could discuss that, just describe that for the listeners a bit, because uh, that seems quite central to not only this chapter, but also um, what you talk about in uh, later chapters in in which uh, this sort of localized demon subjugation was later on sort of applied to Tibet as a whole. Yeah. Um, well, so once uh, once you decide that, once you recognize that the the imperial court collapses gradually and starting around the middle of the ninth century. Um, and they, the, therefore sort of monastic and imperial control over Buddhism is gradually lost. Mm-hmm. You end up with an I and you accept the idea that Buddhism continued to be practiced in Tibet. You end up with a, a picture that is more uh, about localized traditions of Buddhist practice um, that were not as dependent on large-scale monasticism that patronized by the court. Um, and, uh, and so at Dunhuang, some, you, this gets into a larger issue of the nature of the tantric literature at Dunhuang too, um, which is actually the next book project I'm working on. Um, what, when I came to the British Library to, to catalog these tantric manuscripts, uh, I maybe somewhat simplistically thought, "Oh, I'll be I'll be reading some tantras," uh, and I got there, and in fact, there's basically one tantra, hmm. and and you know, hundreds and hundreds of ritual manuals, sadhanas and, and vidis and so on. Huh. And, uh, of course, this is lived religion. This, this is what people actually read and use, mm. you know, study notes, ritual manuals, and so on. And, um, and so, in part, this uh, opened my eyes to the important role that this kind of extra canonical genre of uh, ritual manuals played in, in Buddhist history. Mm. And I mean, in the Chinese canon, more of this kind of literature was preserved, but in the Tibetan canon, relatively little Mm. uh, was preserved. There are a few very important sadhanas and, and so on that are, by famous Indians that, that you find in, in the Tenjur. But, mm-hmm. but, uh, but for the most part, it's the Tantras that are kept and, and some commentaries. And, um, and you know, there, that completely ignores the fact that there were thousands and thousands of Tibetans uh, with their own personal ritual texts. Mm-hmm. And none of this was... Can, you know, preserved, yeah. and so you end up with this kind of uh, um, invisible, the mm. the invisible genre of very localized uh, literature that's very flexible because it's outside the canon. You can slip in your own prayer, you right. know, add your own add your own comments in the margins, <laughs> as one as even a modern Buddhist today does. Uh-huh. Right, um, mm. and so. Actually, this so this is the topic of a, a totally different book, but 
like this, of course, was going on in India too. And so the the, the theme of that book is don't forget just how important this this invisible genre was even if we can't see it it's going on behind the scenes and mm-hmm. this and this genre of ritual manuals was actually sort of the petri dish where a lot of this creativity ritual innovation mm-hmm. and so on could take place and then occasionally was re-encapsulated by a new canonical tantra and then new ritual manuals would spin out of that and continue to develop so this is kind of how tantric ritual developed over time was in, through this invisible literature. So returning to the book at hand, um, uh, what this also means is that a lot of the ritual, tantric ritual texts from Dunhuang include lo- reflect local interests as these rituals that are brought up from India are sort of copied and reinterpreted mm-hmm. uh, and they, you know, the, the Tibetans inevitably include some of their own interests. And this is, you know, maybe, maybe even easier because, uh, we no longer have the watchful eye of, of large scale monasticism mm. sort of watching over their shoulders. I see. Um, and so Tibetans, as they localized, uh, and sort of got into Buddhism at a local level, they were also free to kind of innovate in a way mm. and develop their own sort of truly Tibetan traditions, which then became, you know, the the, the cause of much <laughs> anguish and consternation and suppression after the Dark Age when the monasteries came back into being and and authorities started saying, wait a minute, this isn't real Buddhism anymore. This has been mixed up with Tibetan bun and other local concerns and some of this you don't see in India. So this camp, this is corrupt. You know, this is not real Buddhism anymore. Um, but, you know, my argument is that that nonetheless, this was a an actually a very creative and important moment in the history of the Tibetan assimilation of Buddhism and that later authorities, while they criticized these kind of moves that age of fragmentation Tibetans made, they very much benefited from the results, which is to say the sort of widespread conversion of Tibet into being a Buddhist uh, country. So, mm. yeah. Thank you. Um, so, so we got... Okay, so I, I I just wanted to um, move on a bit and uh, look at <coughs> excuse me in chapter three in which you focus on the uh, liber- liberation right um, and you you're looking specifically at how it's uh, described in one particular Dunhuang manuscript. Um, um, now the liberation right itself entails the preparation of a sacred consecrated area or mandala. Um, the placement of the sacrificial victim in the middle, the execution of the victim, uh, be it a real victim or a sort of substitute victim, and the purification of the victim's consciousness. Every step of this rite appears to require various uh, ritual performances and the successful maintenance of certain states of mind, I guess specifically by the officiant. Um, so, well, that's a, I mean, that's a pretty gross inf- uh, oversimplification, but I wanted to, uh, one of the sort of issues that you address um, is whether 
is the problem of whether this is to be taken allegorically, whether this is a prescription for actual human sacrifice, or whether it's a ritual in which, uh, as you described before, in which an effigy is substituted for a live sacrificial victim. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's... Uh, I mean, maybe that's unfair to ask, because I suppose that's like the million, what, the million dollar question or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, I mean, in the most simplistic uh, reading, that, that you know, is kind of, you know, the, the sort of, yeah, like the... Uh, the Fox News uh, USA Today sort yeah. of question of what um, what you know wh- were people really doing Buddhist human sacrifice yeah. uh, and um, what I tried to do was to raise that question and keep it very much alive through the whole book mm-hmm. um, and to make it as real and worrying as possible so that the reader um, felt some of the import of that question mm-hmm. um, and thereby kind of used that as a, as an entryway into these vexing kind of questions of violence and what's good violence and bad violence and real violence and imaginary violence and symbolic violence and what's mm-hmm. the difference. And um, so what I tried to do was to, to, yeah, not to answer that question, but mm-hmm. at the same time to insist that we must answer the, that question. Yeah. Um, and that we're sort of ethically, you know, it's an imperative that we figure out, you know, do, in the cases of violence, you know, ethics are involved and we need to make a judgment call about whether a certain violent act is good or bad. Um, so I didn't want to sort of allow myself or the or my reader to get off the hook by saying, oh, we can't answer the question. Mm-hmm, right. You know, I wanted to sort of push it and ride that line, worry that line a little more uh, closely by pushing the limit and saying, maybe this really was happening. And right. we can't quite tell. And, um, and, uh, and, I mean, I don't think this particular manual, it's possible to say for sure one way or the other, mm-hmm. um, whether this is a case of live human sacrifice or just a symbolic ritual. But I think it's you know clear enough that in tantric religion, human sacrifice has happened over the centuries. Mm-hmm. And then that raises the question of, is that orthodox? Or was that just a misinterpretation right. and people abusing the teachings? But that very question re-involves us in the question of what is good and bad violence. Mm-hmm. Um, so you end up in these sort of circles of reasoning that I wanted to explore and go round and round and round without kind of coming to any firm conclusions. Right. I see what you're saying. Oh, okay. Well, no, thank that, that, that clarifies your approach to it. Thank you. Um, so, um, in, in, in the, in the following chapter, you turn to the West, the, uh, to King Yeshe-O, I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation, but, um, King Yeshe-O of Western Tibet and, uh, his edict of 990, 
in which he criticized certain tantric practices, um, in particular the liberation rite. Um, now, you, you argue that in this edict, which was not the only one he issued um, of this nature, uh, you argue that this edict should be understood in the context of the need for uh, the king to have a monopoly on sanctioned violence. Um, thus, he was not in theory opposed to symbolic violence, but he was opposed to actual violence as sanctioned by the liberation right, or as apparently sanctioned by the liberation right. So I was here I wondered if you could just describe for the listeners uh, King Yesheo's views of the liberation right, as well as his uh, project to uh, nominally separate while in reality unify um, political and religious power. And obviously this is, as you uh, very eloquently describe in the chapter, sort of related to larger questions of the relationship between um, Buddhism and the state and Buddhist history more generally. Yeah, so, um, uh, I mean, in a way, this chapter is kind of uh, the pivot point of this book, and um, and partly when I look, when I first encountered this Rudra myth and the, this manual from Dunhuang, this liberation, right, uh, you know, if you know something about Tibetan history, the immediate temptation is to say, aha, this is the kind of stuff that later Tibetans complain about. Mm. And that, that this is the kind of stuff that these dark age Tibetans <laughs> were doing in the darkness of their demonic ignorance. And, um, and, uh, and that, and therefore sort of dismiss it. This wasn't real Buddhism. So we can just kind of, dismiss it and move on and continue on with our comfortable view of what Buddhism really is. Mm-hmm. Um, and historically that kind of happened, um, except that it didn't entirely work. Um, uh, but so I took for, in, for myself personally, my, in my own research, I found myself wondering about this and I, I started to recognize in myself, my own kind of psychological uh, issues around reckoning with violence in Buddhism mm. and the way that they played into historical narratives of Tibet. Mm. Uh, and I started to realize that that was also going on within Tibetans' uh, writings um, themselves. So I framed that, that chapter, that's why I frame it as a sort of comparison between this King Yeshe and mm-hmm. this, this Western, uh, this, um, British, uh, writer in, now I can't remember, since 18th century India. Um, and, uh, who's working on the Kalika Purana and a, a Hindu, um, right of human sacrifice potentially. Um, anyway, so, so that sort of crossover, this, this pivot point between us as a reader, as a modern reader of these texts and Tibetans as readers of their own tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I took Yeshe as, as a particularly nice case study because he stands also at a moment, a pivot point in Tibetan history where mm. Tibetans are emerging out of this, this 
uh, quote unquote dark age mm-hmm. and, um, and new centers of authority and monastic Buddhism are returning. So um, since writing the book, you know, I've been continued to work on Yesha, of course, mm-hmm. right when I sent off the book for the last time <laughs> to the publisher, a new biography of Yeshua appeared with all kinds of other edicts, which would have been lovely to have. Mm. Um, and so I've been working on those and getting a better sense of his larger legal project, because basically not only did Buddhism collapse with the end of the Tibetan Empire, but also the rule of law. So mm-hmm. Yeshua is sort of trying to recreate a legal system and monastic Buddhism at the same time, um, kind of on what he saw as a bit of a blank slate, which was the Dark Age. Mm, right. And he's working in Western Tibet. And um, and so, uh, and so he, I found his writings particularly significant for how he was denigrating a lot of the uh, local Tibetan practices around him in favor of, you know, monastic, sutra-based, ethical Buddhism. Mm. Um, So it's a first kind of moment when you start to see a later Tibetan attitude about the age of fragmentation starting to emerge. Mm. Um, And the fact that he's involved in law and and reestablishing monastic Buddhism just seems significant in that the dark age is being darkened at this moment um, by someone who wants to use it as a kind of other against which he can then define his own uh, pure monastic Mm. Buddhism and put all of the negativity and corruption and violence into this other box and allow him to then move on and with his pure vision of monastic Buddhism intact. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And I suppose that relates to something you talk about near the end of the chapter, where you talk about the type of Buddhism promoted by King Yesheo, by Atisha and the Guge court, uh, sort of emphasize the um, importance of monastic precepts and adherence to ethical behavior. Um, and that this, or at least it was seen by Tibetans as emphasizing these facets of Buddhism and how this sort of set the stage for a transformation of uh, real violence into symbolic violence and also for the development of certain Tibetan Buddhist orders later on that were interested more in sort of monastic discipline ethics and sort of doctrinal matters than in maybe tantric ritual. Um, yeah. So this... Uh, the, and now, now chapter five moves us forward in time to the 11th and 12th centuries. And um, this was actually perhaps my, uh, I found this personally found this chapter the, the most fascinating. Uh, and here you argued that the, that tantric violence, symbolic or otherwise, and the Tibetan view that the age of fragmentation was a dark ages of sorts, um, that both these ideas were instrumental in creating a new pan-Tibetan Buddhist identity, so I'd like to begin with the Tantra demon subjugating that produced a plethora of narratives about local demons being pacified during the age of 
trans uh, during the age of fragmentation. So you look at, te- at a text called the Pillar Testament, uh, a composite work most likely dating from sometime between the late 11th and mid 12th centuries, and you argue that this sort of demon subjugation on a local level uh, that occurred during the age of fragmentation in this new era was applied to the entire realm of Tibet in the form of the Rakshasi uh, demoness legend and the construction of these 12 outline temples that pin down the demis, who is located, I guess, actually physically beneath the land of Tibet. Um, So you you seem to be talking about two things here. The first is the pacification of the entire realm of Tibet through temple construction, as just mentioned. And then the other is uh, individual cases of temple construction in tantric Buddhism, uh, both in Tibet and India, and the way in which such construction, um, and particularly the pre-construction subjugation rituals, are both a set of actual ritual practices and also a sort of symbolic arena in which Buddhist masters uh, demonstrated their abilities. Um, so, so I guess what's my question here? I guess first, what is the Pillar Testament? Uh, if you could just describe what that is, and what is the Iraq? Uh, Shasi demoness legend. I know that listeners who have studied Tibetan Buddhism will, will probably be intimately familiar with the latter of these two, but those whose expertise lies elsewhere uh, lies elsewhere may not be. Yeah. Um, so the Pillar Testament is a terma, a, revel, a revealed text um, that supposedly. Um, describes King Sonsen Gampo's 7th century uh, activities in building um, this network of border-taming temples um, that were necessary to build over the limbs of this demoness of the landscape of Tibet before they could complete construction of the, the... sort of sent over the central sort of sometimes called cathedral of Tibetan Buddhism, which is in Lhasa and supposedly resides over the demoness's heart. Mm. So she had to be kind of pinned down before, uh, before she, before this central Rasa Trulnang could be completed. Um, So, what was the second thing? Right. Um, yeah, and I should also mention for uh, anyone who's listening, has the book on page 114 in your book. You have a very nice picture of this, an image of this, actually, sort of the land of Tibet with this demoness being and kind of pinned down by these, um, the figure of the demoness imposed on a sort of uh, uh, visual depiction of Tibet. Right. So the second question uh, was uh, basically the, um, well, just what the Raksh chassis demoness legend is this idea that there's this sort of uh um you know demon underneath so i i i I guess what i what is what you seem to be saying here is that this was a sort of uh or what, what i understood was that this was a um application of these kind of demon this type of demon subjugation that had become so popular during the age of fragmentation it was sort of a application of that at a sort of national level national is not quite the word but um an application of it to the entire realm of tibet is that correct yeah so the previous chapter about yeshigo if that was a kind of case study of the writings of one individual this king 
right. in the late 10th century, then what this chapter does is kind of move into to explore how some of those same themes of defining a negative demonic other against which pure monastic Buddhism could be, uh, you know, defined, mm-hmm. um, uh, that this then took on a larger, that those kind of themes took on larger, that rhetoric took on larger significance across all of Tibetan Buddhism. And this famous myth of Song Tsengampo, the first great Buddhist king in the, t- in the seventh century, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, establishing the, the, the heart, uh, the, the, the central um, temple of all of Tibetan Buddhism uh, in Lhasa, um, you know, is understood in, within the sim, same kind of terms of, you know, there's this fundamental uh, demonic identity of Tibet and Tibetans. Mm-hmm that needs to be subjugated by the enlightening influence of Indian Buddhism mm. that, and that, that can sort of pin down the Tibetan character. Mm-hmm. Um, and Janet Gautso had written an article, I can't remember when now, in the 80s or 90s, outlining some of this. Mm. Um, so I was very much building on her work here. I see. Um, uh, but tracing it back more into Indian precursors and, and, Placing it within this larger context of um, the language, Tibetan Buddhist language around violence, mm-hmm. and and you know, to tell you the truth, one this this chapter is a short, probably the shortest chapter in the book, and was originally part of the chapter that follows it on Buddhist warfare. Mm-hmm. And part of what I was interested in doing was exploring two kind of spatial models mm. that one finds in Tibetan Buddhism mm-hmm. that I think relate to the Tibetan relationship with violence. Um, and so this chapter outlines one in which the demon is pinned beneath the mm-hmm. edifice of Buddhism. And you find that also, I trace it all the way back to stupas and so on in India, where you find... Um, relics, death, uh, and sometimes demons pinned beneath stupas and buildings, temples. This ra- raises the issue of foundation sacrifice, mm-hmm. which is, well, whether it ever happened or not, is sort of a uh, kind of rumors uh, of this practice. You find all through Southeast Asia and Asia and into Europe and so on, of the idea of killing some innocent, often a child, and burying them in the foundation of a building and, and somehow the spirit then of that sacrificed person infuses and strengthens the walls of the, the building. Mm. Um, and I found that image interesting in terms of understanding this, this Rakshasi myth and mm. the idea of building Tibetan Buddhism on violence on demonic violence and concealing it underneath and yet somehow the power and strength and spirit of that demonic violence continues to lurk beneath and sort of infuse the the edifice of tibetan buddhism Mm. so in sort of symbolic terms i found this kind of an interesting myth to explore um and and 
Yeah, or, no, I'm sorry. So, and 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 as you clearly show in this chapter, that's linked to an idea of uh, Tibetans being somehow spiritually inferior vis a vis in all things Indian, and also um, this idea that they're sort of somehow by nature demonic, and t- Tibet is, and Tibetans are, and they must be sort of subjugated by Indian Buddhism. So, we're, we're getting close to the end, but I just wanted you to quickly contrast that with what you already alluded to, which was. Uh, another spatial model, which is the topic of chapter six, in which um, which involves a quite a different uh, self conception, Tibetan self conception. Right. So then, yeah, that moves. Is, we're sort of moving chronologically here, and so that moves to the Mongol conquest of Tibet and and the the sort of gradual extinction of Buddhism in India, and the way that Tibetans suddenly start to find themselves as the inheritors and authorities on, on true Buddhism. Mm. Um, and so the spatial model that I explore in here is the idea that, uh, which you can also find all the way back into the earliest Buddhist stupas in India, is the idea that Buddhism sits at the center and pushes, instead of pushing the demonic negative other underneath, it pushes it out to the to the boundaries to the to the margins. Mm. Um, so uh, there's that book haunting the Buddha um, mm-hmm. by De Caroli, where he talks about how you have these laukika spirits on the Vedikas and, and Toranas around um, Sanchi and so on in India, um, and in the same way in tantric mandalas, you have demons lurking outside of the Buddhist mandala who aren't allowed in and. And there are these worldly laukika protectors of the tantric system. And so this whole model is a kind of alternative spatial model, but also potent in the Tibetan imagination. Um, and so I used it part, uh, to characterize this late, slightly later period where Tibetans found themselves now um, at the center of the Buddhist universe with the Mongols at the edges and, and the, you know, asking them what real Buddhism is instead of Tibetans going to India and asking Indians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, there was sort of a role reversal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and with this, I also explored the issue of Buddhist warfare, I think was that same chapter, mm-hmm. um, where uh, um, the themes of violence and demonic subjugate demon subjugation take on a large scale kind of form in war magic on behalf of these Mongols and sometimes on behalf of the Mongols, sometimes against the Mongols. And I think the chapter culminates with the fifth Dalai Lama's rise to power in the 17th century, Mm. um, which is very complicated and involves all sorts of political intrigue and details. But if you read, the fifth Dalai Lama's own autobiographical account, he frames it very much in kind of mythic and ritual terms. Mm. Uh, and these are the terms that I've been exploring all through the book of, of demon subjugation and mm-hmm. liberation rights and war magic being kind of the grand scale politic, political sort of instantiation of these same issues. Yeah. Well, We've taken a lot of your time. I want to ask you one final question. I also wanted, before I ask you, I just want to note to listeners that there's loads and loads and loads that we didn't cover a lot about uh, 19th um, and 18th century uh, European depictions of Tibetan Buddhism and some uh, 19th um, century Tibetan 
and 20th century Tibetan depictions of Tibetan Buddhism and violence. Um, a lot of stuff about Indian precedents and Indian um, sort of comparisons that we didn't discuss. But um, but you'll have to read the book to get all that. But as a final question, I just wanted to ask if there's something that you're uh, working on at the moment. I know you've got a book under review with Columbia University Press uh, through the eyes of the Compendium of, of Intentions, the history of the Tibetan ritual tradition. Um, do, could you say a word about that or anything else that you're working on? Um, yeah, that book, which that working title will probably be replaced. It's a bit clunky and um, I haven't come up with a better alternative yet. All right. But um, uh, that's basically just my dissertation reworked um, and uh, um, maybe more interesting, at least to me, because <laughs> that's sort of old news and I should have done it immediately but left it in the background for too long. Mm. Um, but th- then then there's this other book project that I, I mentioned on the early development of tantric ritual, B- Buddhist ritual as seen through the lens of these Dunhuang manuscripts. Mm. Um, so in a way, this is kind of looking at Indian tantric ritual but using these Central Asian manuscripts mm. um, as, as uh, the looking glass. And so... Um, you know, th- this is what I talked about before, where I ponder the larger issue of the role of the genre of ritual manuals and uh, and then look at how what we actually learn from this kind of time capsule of lived Buddhist religion at this crucial moment in the development of Tantra um, I think the like I said, most of these manuscripts, these Tibetan tantric manuscripts, date from this so-called dark age or age of fragmentation, the tenth century. Mm-hmm. But they reflect a moment in the development of tantric Buddhism in India. That's more like the end of the eighth, turn of the ninth century. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is actually a kind of crucial moment in the development of tantric Buddhism, um, where you got get a lot of the ritual structures, but a lot of the content is, and and the moves that are made within those larger structures are still being worked out. Hmm. So it's sort of a, an interesting stepping stone. I think this material yeah. um, has a lot to offer our understanding. Well, we'll look forward to that. And uh, I just want to thank you very much for speaking with me today. And I wanted to thank all our listeners for tuning in. That's it for today's New Books in Buddhist Studies. See you next time. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.